Anger is one of our most common temptations. In fact, you cannot put two imperfect people together for an extended period and expect them not to have a conflict, whether it's husband and wife, parents and children, friends and friends. Anger will always be part of their relationship. Therefore, knowing how to navigate the conflict while removing the anger is absolutely essential. We cannot work through any relational dust-up well if our sin plan does not include anger's removal. And so as you build out your sin plan, which is your plan to deal with the inevitable reality of sin happening in our lives, well, part of our sin plan has to be the removal of anger. And so in this podcast, I want to give you 12 crucial tips to help anyone address the their conflict from a biblical perspective. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas. You're listening to the Life Over Coffee podcast. I'm very glad that you are here. The title of this podcast is 12 Tips to Help a Person who is angry with someone. As all of our resources are, you can read, you can watch, and you can listen. And so if you go to this resource, 12 Tips to Help a Person Who is Angry with Someone, uh, you can find a full 2,000-word-plus article. You'll find the video embedded, and you'll also find the podcast. For those of you who are listening to the podcast on your mobile device, thank you very much. Please make sure that you have subscribed so that you can get all of our podcasts. There's typically three drops a week. Uh, We do three videos and three podcasts a week. And so on YouTube and Rumble, you'll find our videos as well as on our website. And then you'll also find our podcast on our website, but you can also find it on iTunes and Spotify and Podbean and, and so forth and so on. And so please subscribe if you're listening uh, through your device. And then also, if you would, write a review, a good review, and give us a five-star rating because it's one of the ways that you can help us to reach as many people as possible with the practical message of Christ. We made a decision many years ago that we would give our resources away, and by the grace of God, we have continued to do that. We have people that do benefit from what we do, and they also have the ability uh, to underwrite this ministry, and so they support us financially. I know that everybody cannot do that, and so we don't want to guilt trip anyone, but there are a few who can, and because of that, you're able to listen to this or watch or read. You're also able to share uh, these resources with anyone that you wish. Many biblical counselors use our content as homework assignments because there's so many embedded links inside of them. And so these are huge tools, biblically centered tools uh, that speak to everyday practical matters. This one here is on how to mediate a conflict between two friends. Bert and Biff have gotten themselves into a dust up and here you are and you don't want to recuse yourself. You know that you have a responsibility to step in. Uh, But the temptation is to disqualify ourselves when we see stuff like this going on. Either we're too busy or we tend to take a passive approach or maybe we feel like this is a pay grade higher uh, than what we have the ability to uh, engage and so we just don't get involved for whatever the reason may be. 
I trust that these 12 tips that I give you will help you. They will not be comprehensive in nature, but they will lay a solid foundation in your relational conflict toolbox. And then, of course, if you have a specific issue that you want to lay on top of this uh, to unpack, then please come to our community forums and you're welcome to discuss that with us. There is only one place in the world where we talk to people. It's the only place that we can uh, because we are a limited ministry, limited resources-wise, whether it's financial or human resources. And so we cannot be everywhere all the time to meet everybody's question. But if it is important to you, I promise you we will not turn you away. Uh, We will interact with you, and it would be a pleasure to do so. But there is one requirement. You have to come to our place. And so you can jump on our forums, and you can ask those those questions that are important to you. All right, let me jump into this. 12 tips to help a person who is angry with someone. Biff and Bert are longtime friends in the church, and they are angry with each other. They had a dust up, and you happen to be an unwitting bystander, unsure how to proceed. This inevitable spot is always tricky for friends and family as they watch two people in a standoff potentially destroying the relationship. Some guidance to help your two friends first appears to be a pay grade above your ability, but you know you can't recuse yourself from what you are observing. I like James's words in 4.17 here. He says, For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so we are motivated by the words of James that we will not recuse ourselves, but we're going to step into it, maybe with fear and trepidation, not knowing how or exactly what to do. And that's why I hope that these 12 tips will be foundational in all of your relational conflict. Being around angry people is like walking down a sidewalk as a speeding motorist hits a mud puddle, splashing the yucky road grind all over your clothes. You were minding your business, but here you are. To complicate matters, offended people often place expectations on the bystanders the helpers, and how they should respond to the offenses that happen to them. Now, this is where you do want to step up and you have to lead. The people who are in the situation can't lead the situation because it can get one-sided in a hurry. And so you want to, in a balanced way, lead them through it. But sometimes they can place these heavy-handed expectations on you. And so you want to be careful. And so what you do next is of utmost importance. This uninvited situation inevitably means the way you involve yourself will be a stewardship issue. How are you going to steward this? Which means it is elevated to the level of an obedience to God issue. And that is your most significant concern. Before we get into the complexities of what's going on horizontally, 
We have to be fixed in our minds that this is an obedience issue, that this is a vertical thing between the Lord and me that I have to resolve. And then with with his God-centered perspective and encouragement and motivation and insight through his word, now I can move horizontally and hopefully I will be redemptive in the lives of my friends. If I'm not, then the enemies of God could use me, could use you to exacerbate an already deteriorated situation. Passivity is an anti-gospel message, and so we cannot do that, and so we're looking for tips to help our combatants, and I trust that these 12 tips will be beneficial for you. Again, not a comprehensive listing, but definitely foundational things that you should know that should come automatic to your mind, and then as you lay your unique situation on top of these 12 tips, you will really have a space to work, and you'll have the tools that you need to be able to help whomever your friends are when they get into those uh, difficult conflicts. Number one is I titled Brother's Keeper. Now, I do not have to make a case here on whether you should have a role in this matter. There are too many one another passages in the New Testament to prove that you must insert yourself. Now, whether it is you or someone else, there is no question that the body of Christ should mobilize itself and get involved in this relational conflict. Christianity is not a spectator sport, and therefore it is okay. Uh, Maybe you do come to the conclusion that this is a pay grade higher than what your abilities currently are. That's fine. But then the way that you participate is that you go and you find someone else and then you too work with the two individuals in conflict. Christianity is an all-hands-on-deck call from God, especially when part of the body is suffering. Sadly, too many people in our body would it, they would rather evangelize the world than to take care of themselves. It's easier to go out into the world to tell people about Jesus than it is to get inside the messy construct, the milieu of what's going on, like say with Biff and Bert here at the local church. But this reaction of being quick to evangelize and uh, slow to get into our sanctification dust-ups is short-sighted. I mean, the truth is, and there's irony here, that our success in taking care of ourselves will directly impact how well we can spread the Lord's fame globally. Trying to win folks to Christ out there somewhere when Christ does not transform our hearts in here, it's not just unwise, but eventually uh, it's going to fold in on us and our message out there will be defamed in many ways. And so we are our brother's keeper. Number two, a timed repentance. The real question is what? is what does help look like in a situation with two angry individuals? Repentance is a gift from the Lord, so it is impossible to mandate reconciliation. You cannot make them change. We cannot make anyone change. 
Just because a person inserts themselves into someone's mess doesn't mean the problem will resolve itself. In fact, there will probably not be any quick fixes when the hurt is as painful as what Biff and Bert's situation is about. I wish it were not the case, but sin, sin is always messier than our wishes. Biff and Bert have a long history together. They're friends in the church, and typically when friends have a long history together and they get in an argument that is this intense, well, it intensifies the hurt that they are experiencing between each other. Two strangers who disagree can move on down the street with their lives without carrying the burden of their disagreement. You can get over it quickly. But when it's friends who have mutually invested in each other's lives, the pain is more profound. And the narrative is always more complex because this is not their first disappointment with each other. Uh, There is water that has gone under that bridge. And so part of the repentance process will be peeling the onion back and dealing with all the layers that led to the current conflict. And so number two, a timed repentance. It is a gift from God. Not only is the overall repentance a gift from God, but you're going to find all these little micro opportunities within the conflict as you peel the onion back. Number three, for you, understanding compassion. Your call to compassion for them will be absolutely essential. Think about that onion as you continue to unravel and find more and more stuff uh, that is involved in this conflict. You will not be able to speed up their repentance, which means you will have to give them room to sin. You've got to give them room to wobble, at least to some degree. I'm suggesting that their repentance and reconciliation is going to have a few wrinkles in it. You remember what I said earlier, sin is messier than what we wish. Now, I realize this may go against what some people believe, but there is no way around it. Maybe if you thought about it like grieving the death of a loved one, it would make more sense. If you have ever lost a loved one, you know that no matter how much you wanted to project yourself into the future to where you could be happy, be okay, be whole again, you just cannot get there from where you were. You have to go through the process, and these men are imperfect men walking through the brokenness of a relationship. So they are imperfectly walking down a dark tunnel, and it's going to take a while to work through all the issues before they step into the light. And as much as they would like to be okay again with each other, It will not happen in a short time frame, so you want to guard against mandating an artificial window where predetermined things must happen. You're going to need compassion on them because you will have to slow your own self down as they work through it. Number three, understanding compassion. Number four, overlooking offenses. 
As you consider the imperfect process, as you guard your heart against the expectation of these two men walking this process out perfectly, holy, and blameless while waiting on the Lord to grant repentance in their lives, I do not think this is a stretch for you to understand that you will have to overlook some of the offenses, some of the things that are going to crop up between them. If you are married and have children, then I know that you understand overlooking offenses, expecting and demanding perfection from our spouses or our children would be a significant familial mistake. Wise parents tolerate imperfection from their children if they have their eye on a higher prize. Mercifully, the Lord does not ping me every time I make a mistake. His patience, his forbearance, his love have done many beautiful things for my sanctification. What you're looking for as you're overlooking offenses, you're looking for the general direction that they are heading. If these men are imperfectly moving toward repentance, then you can overlook some of the stumbles along the way. The general rule of thumb is you overlook episodes that they may do, episodes of sin, while addressing patterns of sin. And so you want to overlook offenses. Number five, talking about the general direction that they are heading, you want to consider trajectories. The people who have had the utmost or had the most redemptive influence in my life are the ones who have overlooked a few offenses while holding on to the expected hope of a brighter outcome in the future. The ones who have had the least amount of redemptive influence on me are the ones who have gotten angry with me when I was not meeting their expectations. I was not performing, changing according to their expectations. Knowing how to be this kind of redemptive friend does require a lot of patience. And so I'm talking about point number five, considering trajectories. Now, this tension is where you will have to discern the present trajectory of their lives, which ties into the previous point of overlooking offenses. Are they imperfectly heading in the right direction? Our children, our children are moving toward a God-centered goal. And if they are, then, well, they will be doing that in an imperfect way, But if they're doing that, moving toward a God-centered goal, even in an imperfect way, we can overlook some of the dumb things that they do. But if they were heading toward degeneration, if they were heading toward deterioration, then we would have no choice but to impose ourselves in their lives by speaking about what they're doing wrong, the things that are not honoring God. And so point number four was overlooking offenses, and then tied to that, point number five, consider their trajectories. Point number six, discerning discernment. These moments that I'm describing to you, these are wisdom issues when each person has to choose whether it's the right time to call someone out or if it's better not to say anything at all. Let me illustrate what I mean. One of the most powerful illustrations of this was when my friend, his name was Randy Smith, he came to my home after learning about my wife's adultery. 
I was banging my fist into the wall while yelling into the night. My friend was sitting on the floor. Randy was sitting on the floor praying. There was nothing that Randy could do to stop me. He was not going to stop me from banging my fist in the wall or yelling into the night, even if he tried. If he had tried, it would not have gone well for either of us. I wish I were more mature not to have sinned, but I was not. And I suspect that my response would be similar if that event were to happen again. But what Randy did for me is forever etched on my mind. Randy was for me, and he gave me room to be imperfect. I've been talking about this. He gave me room to wobble, to fall, to work out my salvation with the Lord, with fear and trembling. When helping struggling people, you want to be pneumatic. You want to be asking the Spirit to show you when to speak and when to keep quiet. You will have to discern your discernment, knowing to overlook offenses, considering the trajectory. You have to have discernment, point number six. Number seven, loving confrontation. Randy knew that I was a Christian. He knew that I would eventually do what was right. Eventually. It's like Philippians 1.6. What God has begun, he will complete. Randy had that in view. And because he did, well, he knew I was an imperfect Christian who needed time and space to work out my anguish. And I knew that he would not let me continue in sin because he loved me too much to let me stay stuck. And so there's the two ditches. He gave me room to wobble, to work through this imperfectly, but yet he would not let me stay there forever. And so this situation requires that you do discern your discernment. And I do recognize that there are some gray areas here. It would be nice if sin and sinners were more neatly packaged but it's just not that way. So it is wise to give a person space to grieve and to work through their hurts, but it is not wise to let them continue in that condition forever. Point number seven here, loving confrontation. Of course, there is the possibility that they will not let you speak into their lives at all, and I know that that can happen too. Sometimes the hurt can be too extensive, and the anger has already captured their hearts. And so you will need much wisdom from the Lord to know the right move to make in this moment. Number seven, loving confrontation. Twelve tips to help a person who is angry with someone. Tip number one, you are your brother's keeper. Number two, it is a timed repentance. God grants it. We can't mandate it. Number three, understanding compassion. It's going to be messy. It's going to be imperfect. Number four, overlooking offenses. Number five, consider the trajectories, the direction that the person is heading. Determine whether it's an episode or a pattern. Number six, you will need to discern your discernment. You need a lot of discernment to know what you're actually seeing. And then number seven, you may need to step in with loving confrontation because you can't overlook the offense any longer. Number eight, fully understanding. By all means, you want to talk to them. You want to find out what is going on, showing your heart of compassion, Showing your desire to understand the situation entirely. 
That's what you want to do. And so the best approach as you do this is to enter into the discussion by asking more questions than making statements or providing answers already too soon. Never assume you understand the whole story because you never do. In many of these situations, a helper will hear the complaints or the arguments from one side And armed with that information, they begin to draw conclusions based on half the story. This approach is almost always a mistake. If you have not talked to both parties, be careful with how you respond to the little bit of information that you have heard. Remember the wisdom of Solomon in Proverbs 18.17. He said, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Number eight, fully understanding. And then tied to that, number nine, one-sided. Nobody communicates objective facts. They always share their interpretation of the facts. They always give you their interpretation of what's going on. None of us are uh, are objective beings. We're all subjective, and so therefore we can only give you an interpretation. And so even as you listen to one side of the story, do not assume you heard their side the way the Lord wants you to understand their side. Your friend will give you his perspective based on his interpretive filter, the subjective lens through which he sees life and experiences hurt. Each of us has an interpretive grid for seeing and interpreting life. We build our grids by many shaping influences that are unique to us, what we have experienced, how Adam has uniquely shaped our fallenness, how he has wired us. This reality means no matter how right we think we are, no matter how right we think or or how much we think we understand what the person is telling us, we are subjective and deceived in real and specific ways. Only a fool would believe that he is entirely correct, and you would be a fool if you thought the person sharing their stories were inerrant. And so number nine, one-sided. Number 10, heart guarding. This juncture is where you will have to guard your heart. It would be so easy to take up an offense for someone after you hear their story. To be critical of the supposed offender is unwise based on the information given to you by the offended. Even if the hurt person is correct in articulating the offenses, it would be wrong to respond with anger toward the offender. You will only complicate the situation. If you cross that line, you will disqualify yourself from being part of the solution. Your best response is to begin walking the offended person through how they should respond to what happened to them. Jesus would not begin by condemning the other person. His primary goal would be to help the troubled person and so help them to think and to respond the way Jesus would respond to those who have hurt him. Luke 20, uh, 23, 34 is an excellent passage. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Also, reading 1 Peter chapter 2, 19 and 21 would be helpful as well. And so number 10, heart guarding. Guard your heart. Don't take up an offense. Number 11, don't be the mini-messiah. 
As you talk to them about transformation, remember that you cannot change anyone. On your best day, you will only be able to water and plant into their lives. There may be a temptation to cross this line by expecting them to change on your timetable according to your expectations and how you believe repentance should look. That would be a mistake. Your attitude toward them will tell you if you have crossed the line. For example, if you lose patience with them or become frustrated with or critical toward them, then you know you have become the Lord, little L-O-R-D, the mini Messiah, while not trusting the capital L-O-R-D to bring the needed change into their lives according to his time. Don't be the mini Messiah, number 11. And then finally, number 12, without ceasing. Rarely will anyone change in the time or how you expect them to change. Sin seems to always take longer than you expect. People entangled in sin will not unravel themselves quickly, and if you do not guard your heart, you will add to their problems by becoming impatient with them. Paul encouraged us, therefore, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing, and that is your most effective course of action. Only the Spirit of God can go where no person has gone before. Only the Spirit of God can penetrate the dark recesses of our hearts to find and to untangle the complications that sin has brought into our lives. Prayer is essential. It's the main thing. If you go into this battle without prayer, you will inevitably be a casualty of this battle. The kind of surgery that needs to happen with Biff and Bert is a pay grade higher than any of us possess. Twelve tips to help a person who is angry with someone. As you think about these 12 tips, which one of these seems hardest to you? Identify it, and then would you talk to someone about that one thing that seems hardest of these 12 things that I have mentioned to you? Would you talk about a time when you messed up your reconciliation efforts? What did you do wrong? What should you have done differently? Also, what is one takeaway that you're going to work on to be a better friend to your brothers and sisters in Christ? And as always, if you want to talk with us, we would love to dialogue with you. Jump on our forums and let's talk about conflict resolution. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.